John 19, 28 through 30. So would you follow with me? <clears throat> Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Uh, would you just pray with me one more time here? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that this is your word right now. And simple words with so much gravity for our lives, so much meaning for us. Uh, I just pray that it would mean something to us today, not just go by. So, Lord, do the work that only the Holy Spirit can do. And that's what I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay. So this passage really represents a, a culmination in the entire Bible coming to this point. And the way that you see John uh, working his gospel is passages like this are very loaded with meaning because there's a lot of hyperlinks. You know, if you web browsing terminology, you know, you get a little, little blue link that links to something else you can follow uh, if you click on it. And a lot of these words act like that. And that's the way his gospel is structured. For example, we read, <clears throat> in order that scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus says, I am thirsty. And we go, what? You know, what, what in the world does that mean? Well, there's several things, and we, don't, we won't go deep into it, but there's, there's a fulfillment of a psalm, Psalm 22, I believe, that, that talks a lot about that. Also, if we ask, where have we heard Jesus talk about thirst before? Uh, there's a couple of passages. John chapter 4, he says, everyone who drinks this water, pointing to well water, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Or in John 7, verse 37 through 39, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And now on the cross, Jesus says, this is the hour when I am being glorified. And so uh, in that moment, then he hands over his spirit. It says he gave up his spirit. And we read that and we say, okay, it's a way of saying he died. But the word is not just he gave up. The word is he handed over. He passed on. So there's something happening here. Jesus is thirsty. The one who is the source of living water, the one who spoke water into existence is experiencing thirst. He's taking our thirst. And notice how passionate he is about this in these passages. He's saying, I know that there is a craving, there is a longing, there is a need in each of you that is as thirst. It's like thirst. We, we need what I have, like what he has, like we need water. And he's saying, come to me. I want to give it to you. I want you to have this. And so now hanging on a cross, he says, I am thirsty. He's taking our thirst. 
and he's giving us living water. He's being poured out for us. Another pass, another mention is, is uh, of the, the sponge with water and vinegar. And that might be a reference to Psalm 69, which would mean that the, the, the wine vinegar that he's drinking is a sign of the wrath that is owed to the nations that Jesus himself is drinking. Or when he talks about the hyssop plant being handed up, the stalk of hyssop with which he is using to give the wine vinegar. That's a reference, a hyperlink back to Exodus 12, which talks about the hyssop with which God's people were to wipe the blood of the lamb on their doorposts so that the judgment would not fall on that household, but pass them over and they would be protected and delivered. And so there's all kinds of meaning here. The word I really want to focus on today is the phrase, it is finished. It is finished. It's easy to overlook. Well, what does that mean? His, his, okay, my time is finished. My job is finished. My, uh, it's, it, I'm finished. It's, it's an end, right? The word in the Greek, let's all be um, Bible nerds for a second. Uh, the word is teleo. So say that with me, teleo. Teleo, that's a Greek word. The, the actual, with all the conjugations and stuff, the word is tetelestai. So we don't have to say that one. Teleo is the root of it. Um, to make an end or to accomplish, to complete something, not merely to end it, but to bring it to perfection and its destined goal. To carry it through, it can also mean to pay off or to pay in full. So both in the beginning and the end of this passage, we have this word. Knowing that everything had been finished, and after receiving the drink, he said, it is finished. In other words, the cross, as horrific of an event as it was for Jesus, was not a defeat. It was not a life tragically cut short. It was not the authorities finishing Jesus. It was instead the culminating event of his mission. Mission accomplished. Project completed. Task done. Victory. Sunday afternoon, every Sunday afternoon, a certain feeling overcomes me. As the labor that started Tuesday morning, sometimes Monday-ish, is carried to completion and I finish a message and it's drawn to a close and there's a feeling there. It's like, ah, it is finished. And all I want to do is take a nap okay, every Sunday. But the beginning of the week is coming again and you start all over. So that's not what Jesus is talking about here because it's never really finished when you're um, in, in preaching. But what kind of experiences can you point to where you might have experienced that sense of finished? Like maybe uh, you get that college degree or, or that you know, doctorate degree or something like that. You, you think back to that first day that you sign up for classes, how it has consumed your entire life for the last four years, eight years, whatever it is, grueling tests, all night studies, reading you know, a gajillion, gazillion pages of, of books, material, and you finish that last question on the exam or you hand in that doctoral dissertation and there's that feeling. It's like, it's finished. It's done and you walk out of there and it's like this load has just been lifted off your shoulders. The study is over. It's all done now. And you earn that degree. You get that di diploma. Um, it says it's 
done. You've, you've done this. Now, the, the silly thing would be then to go and start signing up for classes to earn the same degree that you just finished, right? Like you just wouldn't do that, right? We wouldn't try to finish what we've already finished. We wouldn't try to take it on again. Or maybe it's a different feeling. Have anyone in here ever like uh, taken on a house project where you decided, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy this rundown house and we're going to fix it up and turn it over. We're going to make some money here, right? Anyone ever try that? Yeah, anyone? Yeah, a few of you. Um, you know, and, and you think about that. I heard a story about someone who did that this week, and um, it ended up being way more than they thought it was going to be, of course. Way more money, way more time, and this is how they were going to, you know, pay off their student debt and so on, was, was going to turn over this house. And it consumed, you know, several years of their life. And so then they finally hand over the keys to the new owner of the house, and there's this feeling like it's over. You know, it's finished. I'm, I'm done with this. And they, they hand it over. And so if that were you, if you, if you can relate to that experience, of that sense of being finished, would you then, three weeks later, call up the new homeowner and say, you know, I just really need to come over and scrub the bathroom. You know, I, I really need to come back there and I need to clean that floor for you. Because, no, right? It's finished. It's not your job anymore. It's, it's finished. It's complete, right? It's, and you don't have to worry about that. It's off your shoulders. What did Jesus come to finish? What, what is Taleo referring to here? And so what I want to do to kind of summarize our series and also um, get a, a, our heads wrapped around this is I want to skip a stone through the book of John uh, wherever this word teleo is used, but also a couple places where it's not, and just try to get a quick, if possible, um, sense of what exactly he is saying is being finished on the cross. And maybe a bigger picture point, first of all, is to get a bigger picture, I actually want to go back to Psalm 2. Now, for those of you who are on our all-church email list, you may have gotten a devotional that I sent out this week uh, based on Psalm 2. And so this will be familiar to you, but the point that's being made, if you take the whole biblical scope in, in perspective, is that on the cross, God is establishing his king through whom he will restore the nations back to himself as his treasured possession and inheritance, okay? So Psalm 2 begins with the people, nations, kings and rulers, all uniting in rebellion against God, okay? Rulers, I think, being rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, because it kind of climbs up the tiers. What do you have above kings? Probably spiritual authorities. And they're all in rebellion against God. They're saying, let us cast off the cords, cast off our chains, and cast off any authority that God and, and his people have over us. And so God promises, he says, I have installed my king, on Zion, my holy mountain, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. Keep the word decree in your mind. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Those words are echoed when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, right? We know that this is a psalm probably looking forward to Jesus. It says, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession." And Revelation 3 now says that the church, his people, get that same privilege. We sit with Jesus on the throne and God says, I will hand you, P, 
people, human beings, the morning star and make the nations your possession and your inheritance. And so, so what's going on here? God is going to re-inherit the disinherited nations through his kingly representative. And so now fast forward, John 19, the part we didn't read about the crucifixion, Pilate scrawls out a sign in three languages. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, puts it on the cross, and Jesus is crucified outside the city, near the city. The Jewish leaders say, no, no, don't do that. Why? Well, because it's near the city of Jerusalem. Right, right. instead, he said he's the king of the Jews. Pilate says, no, I've written what I've written. A sign goes up proclaiming in the three languages that would be common to the entire Mediterranean world, the king. Then it goes on to say that the soldiers divided up his garments into four shares. Okay, if, we were, if you were here when we talked about John 13, you'll know what the word share means. The word share means inheritance. We'll know what a garment means, that when Jesus was in that upper room about to wash his disciples' feet, he laid aside his garment that represented his identity and his inheritance as coming from God and going back to God and having all things been given under his authority and dominion. And the number four, remember they said four shares, often, mostly, usually refers to the four corners of the earth or the four waters flowing out of the throne room of God or the Garden of Eden like in the Revelation temple, the restored Eden, the throne room, out of it flow the waters, the rivers once again. That's like inheritance language, okay? So now you have a king exalted, lifted up on a throne, not a, on a cross, not a throne, and a declaration going out of the city to the nations of the king's return, inviting the nations to come back and come out of their oppression and return as God's inheritance, as God's possession, as his people. And out from this place are going the four pieces of his inheritance, the rivers, the four rivers to the end, the four corners of the earth. You see this picture. It's all very symbolic. And I think it's probably literally happened. I think, I think John is connecting what happened with, with symbolic meaning here. The king has been exalted, inviting the nations to come back. A door has been opened to fall under the dominion of the king. The king is returned. And now you can come home. So that's the first point. That's the first work that Jesus has come to finish, to, to make it official. The door is open. The king is on the throne. Two, the second one is that the work that Jesus is accomplishing is to take away the sins of the world. Okay, John chapter 1, verse 29. The people are going out to the wilderness to see this strange, fiery, dynamic preacher who's preaching in the Jordan River and baptizing people. And he's this guy who eats bugs, locusts, and honey, and dresses in camel's fur, this eccentric dude. And so you're out there watching, and all of a sudden he sees one of his relatives come, and he points to them and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you weren't Jewish or didn't know the customs or the celebrations, you'd be going, what? 
You know, this is a, this is a biped. This is a human being, not a lamb, certainly. And so, if you were Jewish, though, you'd know the connection. You'd know that this is a connection with the Passover lamb, who God said when the Israelites were under slavery, said, "I'm going to send my judgment upon the firstborn of all of Egypt. So take a lamb without blemish, kill it." And use a hyssop plant. Remember, you got John uses the word hyssop here very intentionally, right? And spread its blood on the doorpost and lintel of your home. Thereby, you will be under God's protection and the judgment will not fall on you. And it's, it's by the blood of these lambs that God's people were redeemed out of slavery and brought into the wilderness and ultimately the promised land. By the blood of the lambs, the people were rescued from one domain to the next, okay, one dominion to the next. Now, we hear that if you've been in church for a while, we know, okay, Jesus died for our sins, but stop for a minute. The core problem of the human condition, the root behind every war, famine, hunger, injustice, the reason you can't get along with your brother or sister or can't seem to get it right as a mom or a dad, the thing in you that is the problem in our entire world, the claim is on the cross, a work is being done that is taking that away, it is actually dealing with it. Is that true? Is that possible? Okay, so that was number two. On the cross, the finished work is Jesus taking away the sin of the world. The implications of that are massive for us. Three, fast forward to John chapter four. The finished work on the cross is Jesus yielding a harvest unto eternal life. Okay, so in John chapter four, Jesus and his disciples are journeying. They're going through Samaria. It's hot. They stop at a well. The disciples go into town to get some food. They come back and here's Jesus talking with a woman. That's a scandalous thing in the first place. He's talking with her alone. That's even more scandalous. You don't, you don't do that in this culture. You could harm her reputation. You could harm your own reputation. You know, you just culturally not okay. And, and, and here they are engaged in this conversation. She gets up and goes, running to town and leaves her water jar there that she'd come to the well to get water in the first place. She leaves her water jar and goes to town and the disciples, they don't say anything about this or oh, what's going on here. And they say, Rabbi, you should really eat something. And I love how Jesus responds here. You know, we often think, gosh, if you could be in a room with Jesus, wouldn't that be so insightful and wonderful to just hear him speak or whatever? And I think most of the time we'd just be going, what? You know, what, what is he talking about, right? He's so confusing because what, are he, what does he say? He says, guys, I have food that you know nothing about. And they're looking at each other and they're going, did, did you give him something? Did, did he go to town? Like, what, how did he get food? What are you talking about? And, uh, and so he shares, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish, teleo, there's that word, teleo, to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life. And so the work that Jesus is going to finish on the cross is to reap a harvest 
of people for eternal life. And I just want to make a note. Do you catch Jesus' excitement here? Like, like God didn't send Jesus to earth and say, my son, it came to this and now you must die. And Jesus came down and said, you know, all right, I'm going to do the work. These little peons down here can't get it together, so we've got to take care of business ourselves. No, no, he's, he's saying, I have food. The thing that's driving me, that's giving me subsistence, is the fact that even now a reaper is going out to yield a harvest because she herself just received eternal life living water. And, and now she's going to go out and they're coming, guys. They're coming. This is what I live for. This is my food. I don't know if you've ever worked on a project that turned from labor into a labor of love. Uh, my, a few months ago, back in the fall, uh, my, kid, my son and I and a couple other dads and their sons, we had a cajon building night, okay? This was really kind of cool. It's very simple. A cajon is just a box it's a wooden box, it's a drum. You sit on it and you play it. It sounds almost like a full drum kit on its own. It's really kind of fun. And so we kind of started experimenting with these. And it was fun, but then I had some leftover pieces. So I kind of put one halfway together and it looked pretty sloppy. And it was like, ah, okay. I just left it like all winter. And so a couple of weeks ago, I picked it up again and it started, maybe I can do something with this. I started smoothing it out. And something happens as you watch raw wood take shape. And as you watch, and then you, you, you start to sand it, and it gets smooth, and the things are looking nice, and you're wondering, hey, you know, I wonder what kind of finish I should put on this, or, or whether I should put a snare here or here, and how that might sound. And, you, and, and pretty soon, um, this labor is turning into something you really enjoy. It's like your food, okay? When I'm doing the mundane stuff, sitting there doing the dishes, I find myself thinking about how I want to get down there and work on this project. I want to finish this work. And, and that's kind of a petty example. But I just want you to know, like God didn't reach out to you reluctantly. He said, you are the harvest. And the idea of you coming to me it's what I live for. It's, it's like food to me. It's, it's what drives me. It's what sustains me. It's what pushes me on. I, this is my project. And, and I want us to get that impression. I want us to feel that a little bit. So that was the third one, that the work he has come to accomplish is to reap a harvest for eternal life. Fourth, John chapter 5, you turn the page, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. The finished work of the cross here is the work of transferring people out of one realm of death and darkness into the realm of light and eternal life as God's restored people. So he heals a man on the Sabbath, and this makes people really mad because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So all the Jewish leaders are angry at Jesus because he worked on the Sabbath. The reason why you don't work on the Sabbath is because you take a day and you recognize that my work does not constitute my identity. My self-worth is never to be derived from my career or the work of my hands and so I take a day and I rest in God's finished work and in the work of his redemption. They stop and remember that it is God who rescued us out of slavery in Egypt. 
And so it's the work of creating ourselves and the work of redeeming ourselves that we can't ultimately do. We are resting in God's finished work. So Jesus is working, okay? And and in in verse 16, chapter 5, it says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Then later in verse 36, for the works that the father has given me to finish, teleo, the very works that I'm doing testify that the father has sent me. Why is this such a big deal? Because if you really want to tick off religious people, religious leaders, You go and you take one of their strictest customs and you say, this I am actually exempt from because it's all about me. In other words, God is doing the work of transferring a person from one dominion, being an invalid, an outcast, isolated, away from community, separated, restoring him, healing him, giving him hope, and drawing him into a whole new dominion of inclusion where he can now go into the temple where he couldn't go before and he can, and he can be a part. And, and God is doing the work that he's always been doing and he's doing it through me, Jesus said. And so, yeah, you need to rest, but you're resting in my finished work. So if you ever want to make someone really mad, you know, Say, so your, your treasured uh, institution here um, is actually about me, and you must continue to honor that institution, but you're honoring me when you do it. You know, that's, uh, that would make some people pretty angry. So, very truly I tell you, he says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life, one dominion to another, invalid to healed, isolated to a part of the community, death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time has come and is now is coming and now has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So the finished work of the cross is the work of transferring people out of the realm of death and into the realm of eternal life as God's restored people to give healing and hope. And then we'll jump all the way ahead. Last one, John 17. Jesus prays for his disciples and he prays for us. And the last point is that the finished work of the cross makes it possible for us to deeply know God and be known by him, to have a deep abiding relationship with him. After this, Jesus said, excuse me, yeah. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing, there's our word, teleo, finishing the work that you gave me to do. So the work that God gave him to do is to glorify him by giving eternal life. But what is eternal life 
He doesn't talk about clouds or harps or or any of that flowery stuff that we find rather boring that actually has nothing to do with the Bible. Um, What is eternal life? This is eternal life, that they would know you. To have a deep, abiding relationship with God, Jesus says this is the essence of eternal life. You can have right now a foretaste of what it will be like when Jesus returns. And that's what we want. That's what every human relationship is all about. I want to, I want to be known. I want to, I want to know you. I want to know others. I want to be known. And, and God satisfies that need somehow on the cross. Okay? So that was the last. Beyond that, though, one additional point. Verse 23 says, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Because we can know God intimately and be known by God, it transforms our relationships with one another and the finished work of the cross is to give birth to a new humanity, a new race, a new nation of people marked by unity, marked by their ability to know and be known with one another as a declaring blatant statement to the nations of God's love for them. Let it be visible in our unity. So that's the work that is being finished on the cross. One, that God is establishing Jesus as his king and opening a doorway of invitation for the nations to be restored as his inheritance and to receive his inheritance. Two, Jesus' finished work on the cross will serve to remove the sins of the world by his own blood. Three, the work of the cross is to reap a harvest from among the nations for eternal life. Four, the work of the cross transfers those who believe out of the realm of slavery and death and into another realm, eternal life in the household of their heavenly father. And five, the finished work of the cross has made a way to know and be known by God. This is not just religious activity. This is to have a mysterious, deep abiding relationship with God that will bring about a new family defined by love and unity for one another. All that. In the words, it is finished. And probably more than that. It is finished. Then he handed over his spirit. As we think about that, we need to ask ourselves, do I believe all this? Do I really believe this? Is your life marked by a deep abiding assurance that the king is enthroned and you belong to his country, and that you're a part of his inheritance and treasured possession? Do you live your life and your relationships and your work and your family, your free time, knowing that the most important thing in your life is done, is accomplished? The most important work is complete. That your sin has been dealt with. Does that change the way you live? 
Do you live as one who has been transferred from one domain to another? Or do you still live as a slave in some way or another? Do you live in relationship with God, not just performing religious duties, but experiencing a deep abiding relationship with him? And if, if you're like me, my sense is that it probably fluctuates. There's a lot of times where I can say, no, not really. Is our belief in the finished work of Jesus evidenced by our unity with one another? Because for me, there are plenty of times and in plenty of ways in which I live my life as though the work were not finished. And I think that this probably plays out in one of two main categories. First, we live like the work of the cross is not finished when we start to believe the cross wasn't necessary or live like it wasn't necessary. It's easy to become numb or too comfortable with the words that we hear every Good Friday, every year in church, every day in church, we sing about the cross, we take communion, but it's easy to get comfortable and have the gravity of our own sin and depravity just kind of something we sigh at or smile at. It's easy to forget the potency of this truth that this is what it took. This is what it cost. See, for some of us, we don't like to think about the cross because it gets in your face. It confronts you with the reality of yourself, of myself. It's way too easy to say, well, nobody's perfect. Or, you know, I'm a pretty good person, especially, man, you think about that other guy down the street or, or whoever. I'm, I'm actually a pretty good person. I'm pretty sure God would be pretty pleased with me right now. Or we, we latch on to political groups or social groups or even church groups as a way of convincing ourselves of just how good we really are. Trying to cover for our own insecurities. Trying to save face and make sure everyone only sees that we're really pretty good. And the idea that the only solution for our human problem was for God to personally come down in flesh and blood and stare our sin dead in the eye, all of our collective evil and injustice, to look it in the face and then to personally absorb all of it in himself. That's extreme. That's the extreme. But it came to this. That was what it cost. That is what it took. There was no other way to deal with the problem in here. If you think you can surmount this problem, no, you can't. There was no other way except the most extreme thing that could possibly happen in history. No other answer, no solution. A lot of people like to think they can have a relationship with the divine and that God is completely okay with us living however we want and will just empower us to take us however we are. And we completely ignore this one great hurdle. What are you gonna do about sin? What are you gonna do about that, our sin? There's a wall there. 
There's a barrier. No good and loving God could ever simply smile at the slightest bit or hint of evil and injustice in my heart. And there was no other possible solution for that barrier. No religious activity, no sacrifices, no penance, no prayers to overcome that hurdle. Only the cross. It all came down to the cross. It all came crashing down on Jesus, and he willingly took it. The greatest extreme imaginable. And if you say, you know, I believe in a loving God, but I don't believe in sin, or I don't really buy into that Jesus had to die for our sins business, then what you're actually saying is you don't believe in hope. That the status quo of what's wrong with our world is okay with the highest authority. And there's no, there's no way to surmount that. He had to say no to you and I in our sin. But that no came down on Jesus. There is a solution for hope and for real change. So for some of us, the cross is offensive because it gets into our face and reminds us of the gravity of our situation. Let us never forget the gravity of that situation. That's what it took. It came to this. And some of you need to get on your knees this morning and do some business with God and repent and acknowledge that he has finished this work. So one way we live as though the work isn't finished is to live as though the cross wasn't necessary for me. The cross confronts us in this case. But the other way, the other thing the cross does is it also comes alongside of us and it wraps its arm around us with hope and reassurance. And it speaks not only a word of challenge, but also a word of grace and hope because the other when the pendulum swings to the other side the other way that we live as though the work isn't finished and this is probably more common for most of us in this room is to live as though the cross is not enough we have this compulsive desire to try and keep finishing that which was already finished and it's hard because we are still sinful and broken people and trying to marry that idea with the idea that the work is finished is hard to get our minds around. It's tough, it's tough to wrestle with. How could God really forgive me when I keep screwing up? So many of us walk around with this heavy burden of guilt and we're always looking at our inadequacies and our failures and, and maybe we wouldn't admit this, but we're living as though there's a limit to God's grace. As, as in, Man, you know, I'm just, I'm just sick of this person. I'm just, I'm just sick of it. I, okay, that, that time you crossed the line. That was one too many times. I gave you this gift, but you messed up. You goofed up. And so now, you know, it's over. You're out. So we walk around in this fear. So we go to church. We sign up for classes. We serve. We do all the right things, but not for the right reasons. We do it because deep down, we know we, that we've received Jesus' finished work, but somehow we've got to go back and do maintenance. We do the Christian life out of a sense of guilt instead of a sense of gratitude. We're trying to finish the work he already finished. So when bad things happen to us, when we experience pain and suffering, we think, man, I probably deserve this. God is punishing me. 
I'm getting my dues. This is God getting his revenge against me. Now, there are plenty of reasons for suffering, many of which we will never know this side of eternity. But for those who are in Christ, the reason is never vengeance, nor punishment. Discipline, yes. Refining, yes, perhaps. But also, life happens. Stuff happens. And while we're in the flesh, that is going to be our reality. Christianity makes no claim that if you get it right, life is going to go better for you. No, in fact, it's the opposite. It guarantees that in this world, you will have trouble. So admit it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a sinful person. I'm a broken person. I'm, I don't get it right. But on the other hand, he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. The work is finished. And you might say, but Mike, you don't know what I've done. If only you knew, or Mike, if you know the stuff that goes through my mind, if you knew the stuff that's in my heart, well, let me tell you, if you knew the stuff that, I, that goes through my thought life or my heart, you'd probably question whether this guy should be your pastor here at this church. If the keys have been handed over, you don't go back to the house to scrub the toilets. It's finished. You can rest in his finished work. You can't earn what he's already given. Your pockets aren't deep enough to pay the debt that he paid. There's no way. And God is not looking at you as a merit system. So some of you need to do some business with God this morning. For some of us, the cross is confronting us with the reality of our sin and we're reminded what it costs and we need to acknowledge that and go to God with that and deal with that. For others, the cross is wrapping its arms around us with reassurance and hope. You don't have to finish what has already been finished. Let go of that condemnation. Stop trying to earn what has already been paid for. You can't. It is finished. Taleo, paid in full. Let's pray.